Amen. Worship's like a good hot shower when you're dirty. Amen. You're out there in the world, right? From Sunday to Wednesday, no matter what. I mean, even if you're doing your best, it gets on you, doesn't it? So we come into his presence and he refreshes us. Amen. Nothing like coming out of the shower clean. See kids come out of the shower, they're happy because they've been cleaning places they haven't been cleaning and Well, get your Bibles out tonight. We are in the book of Ephesians. We've been working through chapter 1, and uh, we're going to go through, through uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read through verse 23. And by God's grace, we're going to cover this tonight. There's so much in here. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for these people in your house Lord, I speak blessings on them. Open up our ears and our hearts and our spirits tonight, Holy Spirit, so that we can drink in the truth of what you've hidden in here in this text, Lord God, for those who seek you with their whole heart. Father, we just thank you tonight that you have a deposit for each of us, and don't let any of us leave without it tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, talking about all of what we have in Christ, all the blessings, all the inheritance and uh, outlining the supremacy of Christ here. There's so much in this text. I want you to just listen, soak it in, and then we're going to pull each verse apart. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Listen to verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, open up those eyes, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Wow, powerful stuff. I'm, I'm telling you, there's, a, there's months of Sunday sermons in there, but, but we're going to teach through this and not preach through it. We're going to look at it from uh, the perspective of how it lays out. But Paul, in verse 15, reveals his apostolic posture towards the believers in Ephesus. Remember, Paul is an apostle called specifically to the Gentiles. He started off with the Jews first. They were giving him a hard time. Finally, he said, I'm just going to the Gentiles. Now, he's having an amazing success with the Gentiles because it's what God called and anointed him for. So he revealed, he's an apostle. He reveals his apostolic posture towards the Ephesians, the new believers there. He says, therefore, also, after I heard, say heard, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul heard two vital things about the church, and these are important to point out here in verse 15. First, he heard 
that they had faith in Jesus. Now that's important, amen? No sense having church unless Jesus is there. And if you don't have faith in Jesus and have a personal relationship with him, he's not obligated to be there. The Bible says when two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them, amen? So it's not just a crowd of religious people, it's a crowd of people in relationship with Jesus. Paul says, I I heard two vital things about you. Number one, these people in Ephesus have faith in Jesus. And number two, they love one another. They love the body of Christ. Now, the two things mentioned here in verse 15 are actually marks of genuine Christianity. They are actually proofs of conversion. What proves that we're born again? What proves that we're converted? What proves that we're part of the family of God? Number one, that we have faith in Jesus And number two, that we love the body of Christ. These are the proofs, and this is what Paul is pointing to here. First of all, we've got to know this. Without exception, there is no conversion without repentance. Did you hear that? Without exception, there is no conversion without repentance. Well, I was born in the church. You know, I was born saved, or, you know, my my parents taught me this. No, you have to be converted to be saved, amen? You have to repent to be converted. Many times we, you know, we, we leave the repentance part out and just come to Jesus, say the prayer, you know, come to church, read your Bible, but we've got to repent of our sins. And a lot of churches are leaving that part out because it's offensive to people. You know, when you have to say, hey, we're all sinners and we need a savior and we can't just come to church and play church, we've got to repent of our sin, be born again, and have a relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is no conversion without repentance. And, you know, people will say, but, 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 I joined a church. Not enough. I read the scripture every day. Not enough. I attend Bible studies and prayer groups. Not enough. I taught Sunday school. I sit on a church board. Not enough. I've known some people that, you know, their character was less than questionable, and they say, yeah, I teach Sunday school. Or I'm on the church board. And I'm like, I'm looking at him, you ain't, you're not even saved. But I give to the poor and I, and I tithe, not enough. I wear a cross, I know theology, I observe all the traditions and customs, not enough. There is no conversion without repentance, remember that. Acts 3.19 says, repent ye therefore and be converted. There it is, that your sins may be blotted out. When times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 2.38, one of my favorite scriptures. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Repent, believe, amen, be converted. The the Holy Spirit is given to us as a proof and, and as a gift. You know, when we begin to think of the Holy Spirit as a gift, it makes us appreciate him more. Amen? What a precious gift the Holy Spirit is to us, proceeding from the Father and Son. Jesus said to his disciples, it's good for you that I leave, because then the comforter will come. Amen? So there it is. There's no conversion without repentance. Uh, Faith in Jesus and a love for the body of Christ uh, is what proves that we are believers, that we're part of the family of God. You know, in some If we're honest, a lot of people find it easy to fall in love with Jesus because he died for our sins, amen? When you realize you're a sinner and then you see what Jesus went through, I mean, just watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ. 
You know, I don't know about you. I, I have never cried in a movie theater in my life until I sat there and watched that movie. Just what he went through for us. It's so reflexive just to want to love him back when you see what he did for us. But the truth is, it's much harder to love people. Oh, don't get quiet on me now. You know people, you live next door to them, you work with them, you birth some of them. Years later, they, they, you know, now you're not swaddling them, you're arguing with them, they talk back. People, you know, your neighbors who just don't respect your stuff, they steal your weed whacker, their dog is all over your lawn, anointing it every morning. People, people are difficult and People can be bothersome, and they, they have a lot of issues. And, you know, we, and the, the truth is we find it easy to love Jesus when we recognize who he is, but we find it hard to love people. Now, people can be strange. You ever meet any strange people? Pastor Mike is saying, no, it's you, Pastor Mike. You, amen. See, we're strange, so we don't, we don't pick that up. But God wants us to love people, and he expects us to especially love the body of Christ. Two thoughts from 1 John. Listen to what is said in 1 John. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Did you hear that? Yeah. It's a proof of salvation, a proof of conversion. Who, we know that we pass from life to death because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoa, it, gets, it just got real right there. 1 John 4, 20. If someone says to you, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Wow, I like John's logic there, man. You know, oh, I love God. Maybe you love a concept of God. Maybe you love your image of God. Maybe you love an idol that you've carved in your heart that this, this is my God. But the truth is, if we can't love the creation of God, specifically people, and even more specifically the body of Christ, we're just kidding ourselves. Now, I'm not saying if you find people annoying that you're not saved. Because then all of us would have to come up to the altar and I'd have to be the first one up there. But what I am saying is we do have to have a love for the body of Christ. Now, I want to encourage you Wednesday night. I know it's a sparse crowd tonight and some people, you know, who who need to hear this aren't here, but I want to just say it. We have got to love one another. Amen. We can't just come to church and sit in our spot, you know what I'm talking about, and then listen and give and run out that door back to our compounds and hide behind the gates. We've got to fellowship together. We've got to get to know. We've got to talk to each other. But if I talk to people, they'll, they'll, they'll ask me for stuff and invite me to places. And I'm not going to stay here too long, but I'm making a point. We've got to love the brethren. It's a proof of salvation. It's a proof of conversion. Faith in Jesus Christ and a love for the body of Christ. Verse 16 shows Paul's apostolic posture, as we mentioned, towards the believers in Ephesus. He says, I do not seek to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So, you know, he's got this attitude where he, he's constantly giving thanks for the people of God, specifically converts and everyone at this stage you know they're all new converts christianity is in its fledgling stage here especially amongst the gentiles so he says i do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers first i want to just highlight the fact that paul was thankful 
for those who believed in Jesus Christ. He saw it as him gaining family, uh, brethren, sisters, that, you know, these people are now part of the family of God. I do not cease to give thanks for you. That's pretty powerful. It's not that, yeah, I heard, oh, I'm happy for you. That's great. No, constantly, Lord, thank you for those who are coming and hearing the gospel and receiving salvation. And we should never stop being thankful for those who find salvation in Jesus Christ. We should never get so calloused that, you know, an altar call doesn't move us. We should never get so busy that we forget that winning souls is uh, something that we're all called to do, amen? He who wins souls is wise. I don't know about you, but we all say, hey, it's getting darker. Jesus could be coming back. There are a lot of people who need to hear the gospel. That means it has to come from our lips. But we've got to be thankful. We should never stop being thankful for those who get saved. You know, and sometimes the world is so dark and harsh and depressing that we forget that there are good things happening in the kingdom of God every day. Did you hear me? You know, it's dark, it's depressing. Look, if you watch the news, if you watch news all day, you're gonna think, man, the world is gonna explode any minute now. If you, if you watch cable news, a steady diet all day long, within a month, you'll probably be in a bunker somewhere. I mean, it's just, I mean, every bad story after bad story. But, you know, they're not going to tell you who got saved on Sunday and who got set free from drugs on Monday and and who got sprung out of jail on Tuesday. Come on. They're not going to tell you whose life was transformed by the word of God. They're not going to tell you who was able to break free of the chains of addiction. You're not going to get that on cable news. So we've got to Focus on the right things and always be thankful. Listen to me. How many would agree with me that these last couple years were hard years? You know, as as much as it's been hard, God has been good to us. God has been good to us. And God's been good to Full Gospel Center. And we continue to grow and see people saved. We water baptized 20 people not too long ago. There's people calling, hey, I want to get baptized. There's people getting saved every Sunday. Good things are constantly happening in the kingdom of God. And we should be thankful for it. God still sets captives free. God's still on the throne. He's still accomplishing his will. He's still counting down the moments till he sends his son back to get his bride. Wow. God's not in heaven going, oh, it's really bad. It's out of control. I lost my grip upon the whole universe. It's a, a, what are we going to do? Let's call a meeting of the Holy Trinity. No, he's fully in control. Well, it looks like it's a big mess. Oh, God makes a masterpiece out of man's mess. God's in control, and good things are happening in the kingdom of God. You know, I hope that we don't forget what happens in heaven every time we give an invitation for salvation and someone says yes to Jesus. In Luke 15, 8 through 10, it tells us exactly what happens with the parable of the lost coin. Oh, what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, remember this lost coin represents a lost soul. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, verse 10, I say to you, there is joy or rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. That's what's going on 
when people come up to the altar and say yes to Jesus. That's what's going on when hands shoot up on Sunday morning, first service, second service, and people are saying, yeah, I want to surrender my life to Christ. The angels in heaven are like, woo, they're having a party, they're playing music, they're singing on key. Good stuff, exciting stuff. So Paul is thankful for them. He's thankful that the gospel is still bringing converts. He's thankful for every single one that is saved. And heaven rejoices, and we should rejoice as well. The Holy Spirit is accomplishing the will of God in the earth. Nothing has come off the rails. God is in complete control. Number two, the second half of Paul's posture towards those who are coming into the kingdom was Paul was praying for them. Look what it says here. Making mention of you in my prayers. So I'm constantly thankful for you, and I'm constantly praying for you. You know, the Apostle Paul was, you know, needless to say, an amazing person, converted uh, from persecuting the church, goes on to be the primary, uh, you know, apostle to the Gentiles, writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Wow. I'd be happy to have like one line in the Bible somewhere. Two-thirds of the New Testament, an amazing guy. Yet he finds the time to pray without ceasing. That's how important prayer is. You know, if we think about our own prayer lives, I guarantee most of us need to ramp it up a little bit. Amen? There's so many distractions. Paul didn't allow the distractions of this world to take him away from kingdom business, and neither should we. New converts need a lot of everything. Do you know that? That's why we call them babes in Christ. They're babies. Babies need a lot of everything, amen? Those of you who have children, you remember when you brought that first baby home, you're like, okay, you put it down, now what are we doing? And there was no peace in your life from that moment forward because they need a lot of everything. And it's the same thing with new Christians, with babies in, you know, they're baby Christian, they're babes in Christ. They need a lot of everything. They need everything the church has to offer they need all the five-fold ministry gifts, but perhaps the greatest thing they need is prayer. When you see someone come and raise their hand or come to the altar or whatever, or you, you lead someone to Christ, make sure you continue to pray for them. Yes, be thankful for them. Yes, rejoice uh, at their conversion, but pray for them. It, you say, well, why do they need so much prayer? Because prayer repels the enemy's plans for them. The enemy wants to snatch the seed out of them and drag them right back into the darkness. And you know, we've seen that with some people. We've all seen it. They come in, they get excited, they get saved. They, 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 you know, they're all excited and all of a sudden, you know, some persecution comes or something hard comes or God puts his finger on something that they don't want to release to him and they're gone. You say, well, what keeps them here? Should we bolt the doors and instruct the ushers to be more aggressive? No, we should pray for them. Prayer is what exposes the plans of the enemy. It was what keeps the enemy at bay because, you know, his, he, he's not happy that anyone would respond to the gospel, so he tries to immediately snatch away that new faith. And we have to pray uh, for these new believers that we see, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope you're praying for me. Uh, you know, pastors need lots of prayer in times like this. Churches are folding up. Ministers are quitting at an exponential rate. I don't talk about it from the pulpit because, you know what, it's depressing enough a lot of what's going on around us in the world. We don't need to, you know, kind of focus on uh, the calamities that are happening in churches. 
I hear just locally from some of my pastor friends, so many church splits have happened in these last couple years and people raising up to rebel and take people away and, you know, just churches that are closing down. There are churches in the Hudson Valley that have been here for decades that are closing down. Well, maybe I shouldn't have told you. But it's serious. It's a time to pray. Paul prayed without ceasing. He made mention of them in his prayers, and, you know, it was something that he did. Uh, we've got to be thankful for new believers. We've got to rejoice in the miracle it took to bring them to faith, but we must be willing to roll up our sleeves and attend to them, to care for them, because they need a lot of everything, and we should be praying uh, for all the saints, especially the newborns. Verse 17 gives us a prayer focus for believers that might not be on our list, and it's interesting here. You know, we pray for a lot of us pray for the, you know, the kind of usual things here. But listen to verse 17. It says that I constantly make mention of you in my prayers. And then 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, listen, here's the prayer, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, that's a prayer focus that Paul gives right there. Uh, you know, and it might not be something that makes it to our list. You know, we pray for the usual things like provision and protection and healing for ourselves and for others. But what Paul zeroes in on is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, what's going to keep a person in the faith is not our little pep talks or us taking them out to lunch or us fellowshipping with them. That's all important and it's good. But when push comes to shove, what keeps a person in the kingdom is when they have a genuine connection with Jesus Christ through a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we're going to talk about this here for a second. All the things we do to help people assimilate into the body by being friendly, by fellowshipping, by breaking bread together, all very important. But nothing is more important than then having a genuine connection to Jesus and the only way that's possible is that they get a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's take a look at what that means. First of all, uh, Paul says the spirit. He says the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So he's talking about a spirit. Uh, you know, wisdom in, it, in and of itself is not a spirit. Revelation in itself is not a spirit. The spirit he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. We've got to be careful with this. Some people think I have a spirit of wisdom. God has given me the ministry of being a smarty pants. I am the all-knowing know-it-all. Bring me your questions and concerns. I'm sort of being funny, but people in the body get attitudes like that. I have a spirit of wisdom. Well, the spirit of wisdom is the Holy Spirit. There's no spirit of wisdom. There's no spirit of revelation. That's a misunderstanding of the text here. This text is talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the greatest advocate that all of us have concerning our spiritual growth and well-being. He will help us grow. He will keep us safe. He will keep us out of the snares of the enemy. The Holy Spirit does that. The spirit of wisdom and revelation flows from the Holy Ghost. We've been given wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Now, We've said this before, and I'll keep defining wisdom in its most simplistic terms. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. So the spirit of wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit allows us to apply all of what the Spirit of God is teaching us in a way that edifies us, others, and glorifies God. You see, if we don't apply what the Lord is showing us with wisdom, 
uh, we're going to apply it in a way that doesn't necessarily edify us, doesn't necessarily edify others, doesn't necessarily glorify God. Some people use wisdom to puff themselves up. Come on, we're digging in a little deep here on Wednesday night. I know this is, you know, this is not surfacey stuff, but you know, understand what it's saying here. The spirit of wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Who gives us knowledge? The Holy Spirit enlightens us and lets us you know, see the truth of God's word and then helps us to apply it in a way that edifies. Now, here, I'll help you to understand it by explaining it this way. We've all tried to do things We've all tried to do the right things the wrong way at times. And when we try to do the right things the wrong way, we always get the wrong results. You know, the scripture says the anger of man does not bring about what? The righteousness of God. So I want, I want people to be righteous. I want to be holy. So I'm going to yell at them and scream at them and intimidate them. It's the wrong approach. Quiet now. How about examples like this? You want your child to do the right thing, so you're hard on them and you henpeck them because you, you don't want them to avoid sin and you wind up provoking them to rebellion. How about this? You're so possessive towards someone you love that you wind up driving them away from you. Trying to do the right thing the wrong way brings the wrong result. You're such a perfectionist, you're impossible to work with. Other people can't work with you and now you can't succeed because the vision God gave you requires a team. Trying to do the right things the wrong way brings the wrong results. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to give us the spirit of wisdom so we can apply what he teaches us in a way that edifies and produces fruit. Are you getting this tonight? Oh, I don't need more book knowledge. I don't need more smarts. I don't need to be the all-knowing know-it-all. I don't need to memorize every part of Scripture. Oh, I got, I got the whole book of Romans memorized. Well, great for you. You can't even live chapter 1 and neither can I. Amen. Some people that just went. We've been given wisdom by the Holy Spirit. He is the fountain of wisdom, but we've also been given revelation. Say that word with me, revelation. Now, what does that mean? Revelation is the process by which the Holy Spirit uncovers or reveals the hidden things of God to those who are born again and seek him. See, to, to, to have the Holy Spirit reveal to you the hidden things of God, first, you've got to be born again. And number two, you've got to seek him. Now, there's a little caveat there, because a lot of people are born again, but don't take the time to seek him. You know, you hear me say things so, sometimes when I bless the word that, you know, show us the things you've hidden in here for those who seek you with all their hearts. We've got to seek him past the casual to dig into there. Why? Because God doesn't cast his pearls before swine, nor does he reveal the deep mysteries of the word to the casual seeker. Man, this is good preaching tonight. Although I feel sorry for those people at home. So revelation, it's the Holy Spirit uncovering, unrevealing. You know, there's a revelatory nature of the scripture. Why? And you know this because before you were born again, you'd read the Bible. And let's be honest, we didn't, we didn't get it. You know, and the people who thought they got it, they're the scariest ones of all. You know, they're, they're telling them, that's what you think that means. That ain't it, brother. You know, but we needed the Holy Spirit so we could finally get it. 
And then he illuminates the text and he, the revelatory nature of the Holy Spirit. He begins to uncover as we dig and as we pursue past the point of convenience, he begins to reveal himself to those who seek him with their whole hearts. The Holy Spirit reveals, number one, Jesus to us. Remember that whole thing about I once was lost, but now I, I once was blind, but now I see? Exactly what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit lets us see. What does he let us see? Number one, he reveals Jesus to us. John 15, 26. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you, the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. See that? What's the Holy Spirit's job? To testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and say, ta-da, I'm the Holy Spirit. I'm here to entertain you with all these awesome gifts. Smile, Jared. He's not here to entertain us. Some churches, you have to remind them of that. It's not entertainment. It's not, you know, large screens and skinny jeans and smoke machines, what I say all the time. You walk into some places, it's like, if you can get past the entertainment, is there Jesus there? You got to be careful with that. Now, I'm not against technology. I'm not against having fun in church, amen. You know, that was me up there making all them noises on the guitar that my parents had to listen to while I was growing up. And, you know, I, I love to use my gifts. You love to use your gifts. But it's not about any of those things. It's about the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to us. And without the Holy Spirit, we're not going to get a clear picture of Jesus. Number two, the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. Listen again, John 14, 26. But the Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. Look at that. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Get good theology here. He shall teach you all things. Say all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Look at that. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's our guide. He's our comforter. He's our confidant. He's a, he, he ministers to us. He's our advocate. He leads us into all truth. And then I like this part, especially as I get older. He reminds us of the things that the Lord has put in our hearts. Man, sometimes, you know, you get so much facts and so much knowledge and so many things packed into your head and in your heart that, you know, you can't even catalog them anymore. And how many can testify that seemingly out of nowhere at the right time, the Holy Spirit brought the right words out of your mouth for somebody? Like a rhema word, boom, just out. What is he doing? You're like, I didn't even know I knew that reminding you amen when, when we're sitting here in church and and the word is being preached it is just pouring into us i do a lot of preaching i love when other people preach i love when pastor mike preaches i love when we have guests because i sit there and just drink it in like a sponge i listen to christian radio all day i listen to preachers all day if i'm not studying and reading the word and putting messages together i'm getting ministry from somebody else I love Alistair Begg. I love some of these ministers who really just, you know, are, are just able to rip the word apart and reveal. Because what? We need to get all that in us. And once it's in there, it's in there. Amen? Oh, I lost it. No, you didn't. He'll remind you of it when you need it. The word of God is eternal and it lasts forever. And when the Holy Spirit tucks us in our heart, and it's there. It's there for good. So the Spirit reveals Jesus. He reveals to us the truth. And number three, the Holy Spirit reveals to us our own motives. Have you ever been in a place in life where you're like, I don't even know how I really feel about this? 
I've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of counseling. I've often asked people, well, what do you, what do you think about this or how do you feel about it? And I've seen people sit across the desk from me and say, I, I don't even know how to feel about it. They hadn't gotten to that place yet where they understood their own emotions or their own motives. The Holy Spirit reveals to us our own motives. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God, which is revealed to us by the Holy Ghost, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divisions of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Powerful. I don't know what I feel. I don't know what I think. I don't know how I should pray. There's the Holy Spirit to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts and to tell us what we should do and what we should say and and what we should pray, revealing to us our own motives. There's been times in life where I've had to cease and desist at doing certain things because my motives for doing them were wrong. I had the time. I had the opportunity. I had the ability but I didn't have a release from the Holy Spirit. Wow. Son, your motive's wrong. You can't do that right now. Lay it down. Wow. These are things that only come to us by the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The last part of verse 17 reminds us exactly exactly why we're receiving all this wisdom and revelation. There's a a purpose for it. Listen to the end of 17 here. Well, now I got all this wisdom and I got the Holy Spirit and he's enlightening me and I, and I, and I have revelation uh, and that's all good and great. But it says that, um, that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. See, all that wisdom is not so we could puff ourselves up and say, you know, I'm smart. Uh, I got, you know, and people do this. Oh, I, I'm smart. I got all these certificates and degrees and this and that. And I've done this and I've done that. That's not the point of wisdom. In fact, if that's, if that's your motive for wanting to, I've known people that, oh, I'm going to study the Bible, blah, 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 and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to write a book, and, I'm, and it's like, why? Did God tell you to do that? Oh, Pastor Rick, you need to write a book, you need to do this. No, God didn't tell me to do that. I have people that used to bother me all the time. Go write a book yourself. Write a book about me. <laughs> Say bad things. I don't even care. But I'm not doing it unless God tells me, understand? So uh, understand, you know, it's this wisdom and this revelation, the Holy Spirit exposing. What does the Holy Spirit do? He reveals Jesus. So it's wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the point of the whole drill here, saints, that we would know him better, amen, that we would see him clearer. Come on. That's why you do your devotions, Tom. That's why you get alone in your prayer closet, Pastor Mike. Why? Not so I can say, well, you know, I'm a general in God's army now. I have all kinds of, you know, God really, he really likes me. I spend a lot of time. No, the reward is knowing Jesus better. And if you and I are doing any of that for any other reason but that, it's a dead work. It's a waste of time. And there's no blessing in it. So it's wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This world will distract and deceive us if we let it. It'll tell us the meaning of life is something different than what the scripture tells us. But the greatest treasure that's available to all us is that we would know Jesus better. Amen. The older I get, the more that's my focus in life. I just want to know him better. God help me. God help us. Verse 18 shows us three more benefits of all this Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom and revelation. So 
We have wisdom, but not for wisdom's sake. The Holy Spirit's revealing things to us, but not just, you know, so we would have secret knowledge. It's so that we would know Christ. Three more benefits in verse 18. That the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the states, in the saints. Let's, let's just dissect that for a second. The three benefits here of wisdom and revelation are this. Number one, the gift of spiritual sight. Look what it says. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's a gift of spiritual sight. Why do the eyes of my understanding need to be enlightened? Because without the Holy Spirit and without wisdom and revelation, I, I can't see what God wants me to see. I see what I see. Seeing in the natural. Have you ever saw something in the natural and you're just like, wow, that's a big mess. And then God shows you what he's doing there. And that mess is under construction. It's becoming a masterpiece. We need the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened so that when we look at the, the text here, because we're, we're, we're in line with the plan of God and we're filled with the spirit of God, that the, the, the things that are hidden in here leap off the pages and become real to us. This is, you know, thank God uh, for the, the Holy Spirit opening up the word. This, this is what I do with my entire day is I'm in here and I'm telling you what, I'm usually by myself and I'm having a great time. Don't tell anybody, but this just comes alive. It explodes. It leaps off the pages, amen? Oh, that's good for you. It's good for you too. It's not just for me, amen? Well, you got to preach. You got to make sense twice a week. You got to do this. It's for you too, and the Holy Ghost will meet you there. If you seek him with all your heart and you open it up, it'll come alive. Hmm. The gift of spiritual sight, number two, the realization of our purpose. Look what it says here, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, that you would know what you've been called to do. So many people are walking around. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where I'm going. That's not for us if we're in Christ and we got the Holy Spirit. Why? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. We get to realize our spiritual purpose. Dig into him. He wants to show you stuff. I had a friend one time come to me and he pulled me aside and he said, hey, the Holy Ghost wants to get alone with you. He's got some stuff to tell you. Never forget that. That's a good friend, amen. And I got alone. He didn't tell me. He didn't say, and here's what it is. No, he wasn't one of them guys. He said, he wants to get alone with you. I got alone with him. He spoke to me. Some things that were an anchor in my life. But, you know, we've got to realize our spiritual purpose. And to do that, we've got to get alone with God. And we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to let the eyes of our understanding be enlightened so that we can know what is the hope of our calling Oh, blessed is the person who knows why they're here, what they're supposed to do, and where they're going. Amen. Number three, the third benefit of verse 18 is this, the promise of eternal rewards. It says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, which, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We talked about inheritances. We talked about the fact that God has treasures and mansions and blessings and crowns in heaven for us. But this text is reminding us that there is a promise of eternal rewards for us. Oh, Pastor Rick, I'm having a hard time. Everything's falling apart. My health is falling apart. 
you know, I got bills and I got this and my relationships are in trouble. Listen to me. This is not the end of the story. You have an eternal inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Don't focus on the struggles and all the, the, the negatives in this life right now. Focus on your heavenly destination because it's guaranteed, amen? Some of us are too, some of us are too much like this in life. And we need to be more like this. I want to look down here again. Oh, it's depressing. My fourth hour of cable news, huh? Look up. You got an eternal reward. You got an inheritance with your name on it. You got a mansion under construction in heaven. You got Jesus waiting for you with his arms wide open. Verse 19 reminds us of the unrivaled power of the God we serve. He is all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, There is no one who can stand against him. Look at verse 19 says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So he's powerful, he's all powerful, and what? His mighty power is, you know, displayed in us and through us and around us uh, in in a way that, you know, it's his exceeding greatness of his power. Listen, Towards us who believe. It's that belief in him, that faith in him that unlocks the power of God in our lives. Toward us who believe. Is he powerful for the person who says, I don't believe in God. I, I don't think I'm an atheist. God's not there. It's make believe. Well, sure, God is still powerful. God didn't just lose his power because some of his creation decided they're not going to believe in him. That only hurts them. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God, amen? These intellectuals that puff themselves up and try to, you know, attack people of faith in our colleges and and humiliate students who believe in Jesus. You say, Pastor, does that make you mad? No, it makes me sad. Someday that person who's abusing their position of power will stand before Almighty God. And it's a fearful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God. So he's powerful, and we need to be reminded of his power. In fact, you know, many times when, when you talk about the power of God, everybody gets quiet, and then all there is is a powerful silence. But you and I need to understand his power. This is the God who spoke the heavens and the earths into existence, amen, who, who put, you know, the stars in the sky, and all of these things created him with his words, galaxies awesome right all all these things are you know i mean if you just dig into creation a little bit you see the power and the majesty of god and and we're reminded of it what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe so it's released in the lives of those who believe verse 20 and through 23 are going to give some rapid details and rapid succession here i'm going to move through it quickly and finish up tonight but these details display the power of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll start in verse 20 and just do me a favor tonight. Stop taking notes. I appreciate that. That's a great thing. But this portion of Scripture, I just want you to close your eyes and listen to. So it says here in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion 
and in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's our Jesus tonight, raised and seated. It is finished. He's done. The battle's over. It's all won. Uh, Things are just falling into place according to his timetable. Verse 21 through 23 highlights the total supremacy of Jesus. The God you serve is unrivaled, unchecked, unchallenged. Wow. I, you know, you read in the Old Testament, these people, you know, they carve a statue in an idol and it gets knocked over and they're all, oh, our God fell down. That's not the God we serve. He's the rock, the unmovable rock, totally secure in his power and his authority and his omniscience, supreme in all things, and he put Christ the head of all things. Far above all, principality and power and might and dominion, There's no devil in hell that can challenge our God. He put all things under his feet. Look at that. That's a sign of subjection, that Jesus is in complete authority. And he's the head over the church, his own body. That's us. We're his bride, amen. So that picture of supremacy in Christ there, I encourage you to read verses 20 through 23 and just let that settle into your heart. It's going to give you such great confidence and comfort to know who your God is, amen. Those who know their God shall do exploits. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we thank you for Ephesians. We thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul and the great conversion that took place in his life. You took a persecutor of the church and made him a pillar in the church. And you used him to be an evangelist, to bring in the Gentiles. That, that's us, Lord. And so we're so thankful for the text tonight. And we're so thankful Uh, for the instruction that we should be those who are grateful and thankful and excited about the things of God. We should be prayerful people, rolling up our sleeves and sowing into the lives of new believers and our fellow brothers and sisters, developing relationships with each other because it's our love for one another that is the proof that we've been converted. Father, I thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. God willing, next time we get together, chapter 2 of Ephesians. So I encourage you to get in there, read it, and be ready, get your spirit ready, and we'll enjoy it together. Um,